welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I'm your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K., I'm Mariah Rose. Uh, welcome, everybody. Returning listeners, if this is your first time, you are joining a podcast about the 80s. Yeah, if this is your first podcast ever, cool. Yeah. Also, instead of doing it at the end, I thought maybe at the beginning I should say this. If you are interested in more episodes... You can check us out anywhere you get your podcast, but also at lasergraves.com. You can rate, review, subscribe, like just support the podcast. Please. But I feel like we always say that at the end when everybody stopped listening. So we should do it in the middle. Like, we should. As, as a cliffhanger, be like, and then, and then we just launch into We should create our own commercial spots. Yeah, within? That's, <laughs> it's just doing that. We're like, and going to break. And then it's just us doing our own commercials. Okay. All right. Let's so, do it. The wheels are turning, everybody. It makes sense that we would advertise ourselves to people who are already listening. Yeah, for okay. sure. Uh, well, if this is your first time, you're in for a treat because we are going to be tackling a topic today, not a movie, and it's quite a wild one and fun, mm-hmm. a little intense, so we had to pull out the knives and trim it down a little, whittle it down with our with our pocket knives. Okay. Make a nice little puppy or a train whistle. A train whistle. <laughs> Isn't that what you, what you whittle? Isn't that what you whittle? I would, well, I mean, maybe a whittle bit. Oh, man, I really <laughs> could embrace the whittling lifestyle. You have mentioned wanting to whittle more times than Just I can count. It's so relaxing to have a, a rocking chair and a, a stein of fresh beer that i brewed myself and i live get on wood a barn chips in it huh you're gonna get wood chips in your stein no i won't i think you will no that's crazy no way oh um hey so what's what have you been up to oh we just got back we've oh, been yeah. on a trip yeah we were out of town we almost left the country i felt like on our return trip when we were landing in in uh, houston we were about to leave this world oh. <laughs> when it came down. I was expecting a nice, smooth landing. Mm-hmm. And it just slammed, and we bounced back up in the air pretty high and slammed. And everybody, like, let out these gasps. Well, we had some drama queens ahead of us. They were like, ah! But really, it was more like, oh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was, was really quick. It was a millisecond. It was. It was enough to wake me up a little. Yeah, you pooped your pants. It's fine. <laughs> I did. Luckily, I had my astronaut diaper on, <laughs> like I always do when I travel. So Yeah, we actually, we didn't leave the country, but we went to the East Coast and uh, visited my brother and sister-in-law and their kids in North Carolina. Yeah. Had a pretty nice time. It was almost spring there. It was still really cold. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say one of the nicest things is they have a little fire pit in their backyard, and mm. it's so wet right there now that they don't have to worry about it. So they'd start a fire at night, and we'd just sit outside and listen to music, and it really reminded me of being a teenager, because yeah. I used to do that all the time, and I don't know, that made me want to maybe look into to doing some version of that in our own backyard if, if we're able. I like it. We also did some art music. I mean, we did the whole... Tourist yeah, the art vacation museum. thing. If you're in the Raleigh-Durham um, area, you should check out the North Carolina Museum of Art. It's free, mm-hmm. and they have some pretty nice stuff in there. They do. They do. Yeah, it's a good we're museum. able to check it out when we were wasting time before our flight, and I wish I would have given myself a little bit more time. Yeah, I could have spent the whole day there. Yeah, but it was pretty cool. No, so we're back. We're mm-hmm. fresh-faced, ready to go. Travel feels so weird. I feel like... I need a little recovery. And you come back into your life after you've traveled mm-hmm. and you're like, whoa, I, hold on. I need to recover. I got to settle back into it. But everybody else just has been carrying on and yeah. life has continued. The time change is always strange, too, like especially when you go from West Coast to East Coast. It's, yeah. it's pretty dramatic. And um, I did better with it this time than you did. Yeah, I've been falling asleep a little early. That's why I'm so chipper and spunky right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of, we have to be on our game today because we are tackling a pretty big topic that uh, when we first thought about it, we were like, ooh, and then we could talk about this and that and this. And then we realized we got like an hour and we're going to boil it down to the heavy talking points bullet pointing for you it'll be like the cliff notes version 
I mean, it's like anything. It's a big topic. We're not a podcast about this one topic, so we're just going to do our best. Yeah, but we thought it would be fun to talk about. So getting into it, this week we are tackling the ongoing American (laughs) war on drugs, uh, but specifically the very bizarre moment that happened in the 80s of the Just Say No campaign. Getting into drugs and being high is a stupid thing to do. But being in control and saying no is not the easiest thing to do. Be an original and take a stand. You are free to say no. Don't let a friend push you in. Taking drugs, you got a right. Getting into drugs and being high is a real stupid thing to do. Being original, say no to peer pressure. Say no may be the smartest thing you ever do. You got a right to say no. You got a right to say no, no, right to say no. Just say no. We will talk about this as the episode goes on, but as children of the 80s, we were completely indoctrinated in this program, whether we wanted to be or not. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think back on the school visits and the propaganda that was coming out and the way they were trying to kind of push this whole idea. And you'll, I'm sure, as listeners guess why we wanted to cover it is because um, it maybe had mixed results. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, but before we you know, kind of really get into the nitty gritty. Just a disclaimer. Um, There's so much to this topic that if you like what you hear on this kind of brief episode, check it out on your own time because it is a pretty fascinating period of time. It was more interesting than I actually thought it would be. Yeah, me too. And you really, your only note to me was like, stay out of going too deep dive in this because we need to stay on track of just say no. And I immediately within seconds failed and was already like down the rabbit hole of all these uh, article news articles and YouTube videos and everything. And then yeah. I realized like, oh boy, this is going to be a tough one. So I'll do my best to stay on course. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's all we can ask for. That's that's all you, you can hope for. It's our podcast. We do what we want. That's right. Okay, so I think before we can even actually get into this, we need to define what Just Say No actually was. Yeah, I guess there is an assumption that people just know what that is because it's so obvious. But maybe if you didn't, if you weren't a child of the 80s and 90s, this could have missed you. Yeah, I I believe it could. Or you're not American. Yeah, or I mean, like thinking about our children, they would have no clue what this was about because it's long since passed. No. So we can probably all agree, maybe, uh, that it was part of an anti-drug use effort in the United States. But perhaps that's all you know, if if anything. Yeah. For those of us who were alive in the 80s and 90s, uh, we might remember a little bit more. But in researching this, I learned it was actually a much bigger project than a simple slogan. Let's dive into it. But first, I wanted to ask you what you remember about Just Say No, if anything. I remember a ton. I mean, it was like the absolute peak of that campaign when I was in elementary. Were you like aware at that time of everything? Yeah. I remember distinctly, we all had to meet in the cafeteria of our elementary school. So they would pull us all together. Mm -hmm. It was like once a week. Oh. And we'd come in there. And then a a police officer would come in, or I'm assuming he was. He might have just been some sort of hired help. But uniformed component would come in there. And he would have his little uh, traveling suitcase that Mm -hmm. looked like a a massage board. You know those, Mm -hmm. you know how masseuses can like unfold a table? Yeah. It looked like that. And it would open up to kind of some trifold presentation board that would have the bullet points of the D.A.R.E. program that we'll get into. But what I remember the most and what fascinated me was I credit this program with introducing me to drugs because I really was just clueless until they started talking about them. And I was like, oh, 
cool. So drugs, that's what this is all about. <laughs> and I remember my, my most vivid memory of it was that on one of the panels of their display boards, there was like little plastic windows that had pills inside of them with different colors and different shapes. Pretty. Yeah, to show you what like drugs looked like. Oh. I remember thinking like, whoa, those are cool. <laughs> That's drugs? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, uh, we'll get into it later, but it may have been a little, a little counterproductive. Okay. I don't think, I mean, I definitely didn't get that much like a weekly check-in with a dare officer or anything. You didn't have, like, the car driving around town, the, like, black car with the, the decal on the side? No. So you have to remember, at that time, I was in a small town in rural Montana. Oh, okay. There were 12 kids in my whole class. So once a D.A.R.E. officer came, and I think he drove from Billings. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So oh, that man, was... it was, like, a major thing in our school. We got it all the time. No, I only remember one time. But I do remember the, like, uh, campaign on television and stuff like that, or billboards, things like that that I would see. But it wasn't as big for me. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I also remember the reaction, which is interesting when we were doing research on this to see, like, okay, this was kind of across the board is it was kind of a joke from day one where it was really hard to take it seriously because I remember cops would make students stand up and do little skits. Mm. Like you're going to be the drug pusher and you're going to be the kid and offer this kid drugs and then the other kid would have to say no and everybody would giggle. And I feel like the whole message was being lost immediately because it was turning into more of a improv. Okay. So, well, there's a reason know. for that. So okay. we maybe should get into it. So the slogan itself actually comes from Mrs. Nancy Reagan. Yes, the she, one and only. She's really the face of the Just So No campaign. The origin actually began way beyond the Reagans and the war on drugs well before them. But in the 1970s, the professor of social psychology uh, at Houston, University of Houston, his name was Richard Evans. He began to do some research uh, sharing or kind of building on a psychologist named William McGuire's social inoculation model. Oh, boy. I know. I, if Buckle you're, up, everybody. If you're listening and you're like, oh, my gosh, I got to stop this. I promise it'll be short. It'll be sweet. It'll be sick. Yeah, this isn't a science podcast, everybody. Okay, so let me very generally explain what the social (laughs) inoculation model is, because honestly, it's interesting. It's a cool name. So uh, an inoculation means what? Like an immunization. That's what I was getting a shot. That's a no brainer. So when we're given an immunization for something like the flu, we're injected with a weakened form of the flu virus. Okay. Okay, so our body builds up a resistance to this virus in its weakened state, and it allows off to allows us to like fend off the more potent version of the virus should we encounter it later. Okay, I think I know where you're going. Okay, this. so there we are. We have been inoculated. We all got the COVID vaccine. Sometimes it needs an update. I don't know. It's fine. Yep. That's an inoculation. Most of us got the vaccine. we won't go there oh my gosh so let's go back to the social inoculation model yes let's do it basically operates in the same way as being immunized against a virus or the idea is i I should say this is the idea not necessarily the reality this is a theory uh it was originally designed to help us fend off outside influences from false information things like we might say nowadays like fake news Uh uh-huh and peer pressure So the idea is super simple. By uh, low-level exposure to fake news, peer pressure, whatever, we are able to reaffirm our own ideas and our own beliefs and have a greater chance of fighting off bigger attacks in the future. So it's supposed to be like a self-empowerment It's sort of like a vaccine against peer pressure. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's bigger. And I kind of like the idea in theory. In practice, we'll see. It it doesn't really work but i like the idea of like giving yourself little tests like that would be like you were talking about the skits and stuff it's practice to be faced with scenarios where you might be outside of your comfort zone and you might be swayed easily but if you've practiced you might be able to say actually no this is what i believe so okay I, I get the idea, and we do that with our kids. Every, I mean, not just us, but most people, as we help our children 
face moral dilemmas throughout their life. So it does make a, a bit of sense, right? It does, but I can see with where you're about to go with this that given the circumstances, it's an absolute failure. Like, it's not addressing the actual problems. No, it's only one part of a much bigger problem. Okay. Okay, so back to Richard Evans at the University of Houston. He began using this model in the 70s to help students fend off peer pressure, which eventually began to be applied to an anti-drug effort. Okay. The idea being, again, low-level exposure can help us stick to our guns when the stakes are higher. The campaign uh, got a big old boost, though when none other than Nancy Reagan stumbled upon it. So it wasn't her idea. She wasn't doing this research. She came upon it and was like, oh, 1980. So this had been happening in the 70s, 1980. She's like, love it. Let's roll with it. Because every first lady needs to have a campaign. This is definitely her legacy. Mm -hmm. You know, like every first lady has that thing. And Nancy Reagan's was definitely the war on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So she professed her desire to bring greater awareness to drug abuse. And it all sounds good. She just needed a catchy slogan. She did. And she got it. And we're basically ready to roll. But she she came up with the slogan, but she wasn't the one who actually came up with the slogan. Really? There's some urban legend around that. What I read was that a student asked her. Yes. So Robert Cox and David Cantor were kind of trying to help her come up with her campaign here. And when, like you said, a little girl asked her, what do do I do if somebody offers me drugs? She just sort of tritely was like, just say no, duh. Oh, so that is true. She did say it, but they were like, there it is. That's that's the catchphrase. (laughs) That's that's money right there. (laughs) Put it on a shirt. Easy peasy. Why didn't anybody think of saying no to drugs before? Yeah. It's like when I tell people I have insane anxiety and they're like, just don't worry about it. Like, yeah, exactly. What? Yeah. Really? Brilliant. Is that how it works? Man, Nancy Reagan was really like just swimming in the pool of of this moral crusade, crusade yeah. of the 80s in... All facets, wasn't she? I think her in- her heart was in the right place, but her intellect was not up to par. Yeah, for listeners of our podcast or newer listeners, I would recommend as an accompanying episode our one that we did on the PMRC and the mm-hmm. parental guidance, the whole filthy 15 one where it was a similar topic, and this is all kind of wrapped up in that same wave. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really interesting how these are all tied together. It's a very Reagan flavor. It is, It tastes very Reagan-y. Anyway, so from here, Cox and... I thought that was gore, but you know what I mean. Like, it's got the same vibe to it, in my opinion. Well, Reagan administration. Right. Okay. Anyway, Cox and Cantor, they jump on the phrase and they begin to run with it. And from here, Just Say No clubs and organizations begin to spiderweb out from it. Across the nation and schools everywhere begin to build their own anti-drug campaigns. So uh, what we can see here is that there really isn't one element at play. I think that's important because it wasn't just like, just say no, follow steps A, B, C, D. These little responses to the Just Say No campaign begin springing up all across the country. But there are a bunch of different programs, which you'll get into here shortly. They shoot off from the slogan, and they're supported by Nancy's efforts. So, in fact, Nancy worked so hard on this campaign that she traveled the entire country doing, like, a quarter of a million miles in support of the Just Say No campaign, which... I mean, it sounds kind of impressive if you're in Europe, but if you're in the United States, you're like, well, that's just back and forth a few times. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Uh, what do you do? Uh, anyway, so she traveled across the whole country. She visited drug rehab centers, like uh, anti-drug centers. She supported anti-drug campaigns around the country. Just basically anywhere there was the word drug or anti-drug, Nancy's like, pencil me in, I'll be there. And she appeared on talk shows, released PSAs, she wrote articles. This woman was up in drugs business. Like, all of the drugs. Yeah, and um, the difference with other things from this time, you had a moral crusades, is 
this was fully government funded. So this was the taxpayers' dollars that she had a bright idea on. And so that's what's going to come up with a lot of criticism early on is that we're paying for all of this. But, I mean, in, you know, in a... In a way, you could get drug or drugs. <laughs> well, you, so you could get drugs, drugs to support her. You could get the average American to go, yeah, we don't want our kids to use drugs. Great, Nancy Reagan, get after it. I don't mind my tax dollars flying you a quarter of a million yeah, miles. Yeah, of course. It's like the lowest common denominator. Yeah. We don't want kids doing drugs. And everybody's Great. like, cool. Brilliant. Let's Nancy. just ignore all the statistics and science behind it. Well, but there really wasn't a ton at that time. I mean, there was some, but they certainly hadn't gathered it or compiled it into a, an important document for Nancy to look over. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think she really had an interest in looking it over either. I don't know. So I know we're going to bag on this program because it just has so many flaws, but I do genuinely believe that she felt passionate about what she was doing. She wanted to help. I think her heart was in the right place. I really do. We talked about this with the PMRC, too. It's like, yes, although it was a a totally dumb idea and failed on every account, I do kind of feel like Tipper Gore at the core of that program kind of really felt like she had a just cause. Right. Just her approach was completely wrong. So as I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, so her heart's in the right place. I really, really want to cure cancer. Like, really bad. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to go around the country trying to cure cancer because I don't have the skills or the tools to do that. Right. That didn't stop Nancy. Yeah. She, I mean, she's not curing cancer, but she doesn't know what she's doing. She's just talking a lot. Yeah, it would be the equivalent of saying, like, we don't need to study the causes of cancer. We just need to tell people to stop having cancer. Quit getting it. Quit getting it. That's really... kind of what the equivalent of just say no campaign was. <laughs> stop having just cancer. Just don't have yeah. cancer. It's that easy. Yeah. So she did not have the necessary information and education to do what her heart wanted to do. Uh, and I don't even think she was aware that she did not have that information. Like, I just think she didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. And she really didn't know what she didn't know. Yeah. And there's also a definitely a stubborn unwillingness to listen to anybody else otherwise. She, one of my criticisms about her overseeing this is that it was an all or none with her. She was very black and white with drug use. Like it's she had bad. no distinction between recreational, occasional use versus like full on addiction or responsible use ever. So it was really weird because she pulled it all together and it was like all drugs, all drugs, zero tolerance. Heroin was the same as pot. Like it was it was kind of this was the biggest flaw, in my opinion, was her approach from day one was just not seeing that drugs aren't black and white like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just putting everything into one pot and saying it's the exact same thing. Yeah. And that doesn't work. But we'll get into all of that a little bit later. Let's talk about some of the programs that actually sprung forth from her efforts or her inspiration. Yeah, I would say the Just Say No campaign was kind of the umbrella, but really the the star of the show and the champion was the D.A.R.E. program that mm-hmm. we all grew up on. This was the big one that I was talking about coming to my school. Mm-hmm. So I would assume most people are are familiar with D.A.R.E. at this point. Most Americans. Yeah. Well, actually, globally, we'll get into that. But D.A.R.E. stood for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. When someone offers you drugs, only one of two people can control the situation. The one with the drugs or you. And if you want to keep control, you can do several things to turn drugs down. Like just walking away, changing the subject, avoiding the whole situation altogether or by sticking around with a crowd that doesn't do drugs. Saying no to drugs is a matter of control, and that control belongs in your hands, not somebody else's. For information, call Dare America. We all know the shirts, you know, the D-A-R-E, all the whatever you had, pins, bumper stickers, hats, sweatpants. I mean, they really, um, I think a lot of that budget went to merchandise i feel like i in high school saw somebody wearing a shirt that said drugs are really excellent oh well we'll get into that too okay the whole like ironic backlash (laughs) (laughs) okay well let's talk about dare because this is really for our episode the central component to the just say no campaign 
It was started in 1983. This is all interesting because I didn't know a lot of this. So mm-hmm. this was kind of where podcasting is fun. So yeah. started in 1983. It was a partnership with the LAPD chief, Daryl Gates, and the LA school district. So it started at a very, very local level. Mm-hmm. Like it was just this guy's idea to go into schools. And originally, again, we'll talk about this, at very good intentions at first, which was educate children on how to avoid drug use, how to what to look for, and kind of educate them through a series of return visits and kind of just counseling them. But they also did like a mentoring program where they would play basketball with them and stuff. And it was just kind of more of a, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but I can see where at the core it started as a very basic idea. It sounds a little bit like Big Brother's Big Sisters. A little bit, but with maybe a little bit more of a political agenda that we can't even get into on this podcast. But it started local, quickly spread, and then it started to go like wildfire. Like all these school districts started to pick it up. And then the Reagans, like their mushroom hunting, sniffed it out. And they (laughs) found a truffle called Dare. And the second the Reagans got it, they were like, okay, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. Like the the golden egg for this war on on drugs. Mm -hmm. And it started to go like all over the country. This was in 83 is when the very, very core of it started. By 88, just a few years later, it was already in 75% of all American school districts. Wow. So this was like the campaign. And remember... This was also fully funded by the federal government at this point now. It had been picked up and their budget was... Dare itself Yeah, was was crazy. So it's pretty wild. I do remember all of this. I can see how it had that kind of funding behind it. Coming into the schools, educating, all that kind of stuff. In addition to Dare, because we won't get into the rest of it, you know, just yet. But one thing I think that's important to note is... At the center of it all was the the Triple R campaign. I don't know if you remember this because no. it was on a lot of the shirts. Recognize, resist, and report. Oh. And this is where the criticism comes in because, remember, this is you know funded by taxpayers. It was basically indoctrinating children to look for drug use anywhere you saw it. To be narcs. To be narcs, especially in the home. And because <gasps> of Nancy Reagan's <sighs> view on drugs of all or none... It was like, if your ex-hippie dad is smoking a joint out back, he's a heroin user, they would turn him into the police. There were little boxes in every school where kids were like pressured to turn in their parents. And so it became this like totally convoluted. What were the boxes? Like my dad. Yeah, it was like you can fill out a form, put out the names and then you put it in there and then the police would come investigate. Oh my goodness. And like shake down your parents kind of idea. So this became very problematic because yeah. you can see the dynamic that it's creating. Oh my god. You know, it's it's creating this That's terrifying. little underground children's crusade. Yeah. This is just completely the wrong approach. No, that's freaky deaky. It, it is kind of scary. And this is the part that I wish we could get into deeper because yeah. it's kind of weird when you start to actually think about how this was developed narking on your parents unknowingly oh my gosh yeah but that's essentially essentially that's dare a school program funded by the government to come in with local law enforcement to teach kids and educate kids on the dangers of drug use this has nothing to do with educating kids on mental illness substance abuse or anything it's basically saying uh and we'll talk about this later too Drugs are everywhere. They're under every corner and every kid in school has drugs and they all want to sell them to you. Yeah. I really thought I was going to be approached a lot for drug sales. So another criticism is statistically speaking, like drug use was already massively on a decline from the 70s going Mm -hmm. into the 80s. So Nancy wasn't doing anything special. She was just following kind of like popular belief at that time. Yeah, Like statistics were already running their course. And especially in schools among children, like drug use was next to nothing. No. But this idea, which goes back to very much in line with the satanic panic that everybody's a Satanist, was every kid is like trying to sell you drugs and all you have to do is say no. I can tell you with 100% certainty that in elementary school, and 
Yeah, elementary school, I knew zero kids who did drugs and basically didn't understand what drugs were. The only kids who knew anything about drugs were ones who learned it from D.A.R.E. Or from their parents. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this is just a really convoluted program Mm -hmm. that I think was well-meaning, but completely did not address the actual problem of drug abuse versus recreational drug use. Well, and we're not even talking about addiction either. We're talking about just narking people out, but not helping people. Absolutely. It's really sad. The other other issue was kids were not fully educated on the difference between uh, legal drugs and illegal drugs. Uh-huh. So if they saw their parents taking pills or something, they were like, my parents are using drugs. And guess who comes knocking on the door? And they're like, it's my ibuprofen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I have cramps. Anyway, so that's kind of the D.A.R.E. program in a nutshell. But that really was the big one. The other programs, I mean, there were several more. But the other one that I specifically remember because it was so catchy. Okay. McGruff the Crime Dog (gasps) also fought against drugs. and cracking cocaine to get high that's what you say you love but it's really insane you could die what are you thinking of cause nobody's needing that cracking cocaine there's terrible trouble behind it and sooner or later you're burning your brain making a mess of your Uh, there were so many things happening, and we'll get into it into pop culture. I is love this idea stuff. that like now that we have a, a cause, keep in mind this is running parallel to the Satanic Panic. That's what's wild to me. Is all of this is happening at the exact same time? Good grief! There's it must have so been... many busybodies at the country club. It must have been really exhausting to worry about all the things in the '80s. Yeah. Oh my goodness. All right, so we've already talked about how intense uh, Nancy was about pushing her agenda. But by the mid-80s, she had been on over 20 talk shows. And do you remember also, just side note, how big talk shows were in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, of course. They were They were everywhere. Yeah, she was going on every one of them. Uh, just to d- talk about the Just So You Know agenda, she co- co-hosted Good Morning America. Okay. And even made a super long PBS documentary. Oh, really? I feel like five minutes is probably enough about a drug PSA, but Nancy's PBS documentary went on for like two hours. Yeah, she I liked to like, talk, huh? I don't know. I I'm, mean, what else does she have to do, though? You're in the White House. I don't know. Like, I guess you find a cause and you just go for it. Right, but... Lest you think poor Nancy was doing all of the work herself, she was not alone. No way. Nancy had friends. She had the support of Hollywood because you remember her husband was an actor. Oh, that's right. I don't really actually know that she pulled any actor strings here, but she did have Hollywood support. She was also the first lady, so she probably could get most people. This is also very low-hanging fruit to ask a celebrity to say, tell kids not to do drugs. Yeah. Even though most of them were probably doing drugs. (laughs) Totally. She (laughs) appeared as herself on an episode of Different Strokes. Different Strokes was huge in the 80s. Yeah, for sure. It was a terrible performance. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine messing up being yourself. I would definitely do that. Yeah, I would too. I'd be like, who am I? Anyway, she was on Different Strokes, which was super popular. She was on, or she had the Just Say No campaign featured on an episode of Punky Brewster. Ah, uh, you were a Punky Brewster fan, right? Oh my goodness. Did you watch Punky Brewster? Yeah, I thought she was pretty cool. Excuse me? I thought she was pretty cool. She was cooler than cool. Was she? Soleil Moonfry? Are you kidding? Also hilarious. Her parents were obviously drug addicts. <laughs> 100%. They named her Soleil Moonfry. You know she like grew up on drugs. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. We don't... That's alleged by us just now. We don't actually know anything about Soleil Moonfry, but we should probably find out and do a Punky Brewster episode. We should do a Punky Brewster episode. Why have we not? I don't know. Do you remember the episode where Cherry got in the refrigerator? No. 
I don't. I was so stressed about getting trapped I in refrigerators. I would not know how to reference specific episodes of Punky Brewster, <laughs> but I do remember who she was. She was great. Anyway, there was no drugs on Punky Brewster. Yeah, who else did she rope in? Uh, she worked alongside Clint Eastwood. They okay. made a little PSA or whatever that like airs before in the commercials before movie plays. Uh-huh. So it was her and Clint Eastwood. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, she got a big one. Who? Big Fish. Latoya Jackson. Oh, I mean... Big fish. I know, like sea level fish. <laughs> but okay. That was 1987. She actually became her own spokesperson for the campaign and recorded a song. There was also a Stop the Madness music video. Anyway, there was a lot going into all of this propaganda coming at you from all angles. We've got Hollywood. We've got television. We've got music. It's yeah. just all prong. We've got a Jackson. We got Pee Wee Herman even. Oh. Paul Rubens did a whole special on it. Right. Scruff, like you said. Scruff McGruff, the crime yeah. dog. Sure. I mean, everybody was on board to stop drugs. Gotta stop the drugs. Stop drugs and stop Satan. <laughs> and the 80s were a wild time. Wow. Really were. So even though when we think of, in retrospect, the Just so, Say No campaign being this American craze and, you know, moral crusade, it actually spread globally pretty quickly, too. Okay. I can um, see why. Especially the D.A.R.E. program. That was an easy pitch to other countries. And at the height of it, it was in like 43 other countries. So it really spread fast. It also had um, counterparts that were similar to it. Like the BBC was running anti-drug campaigns. Everybody was just kind of on board. And I think Nancy Reagan was also rounding up other world leaders. She was, yeah. And, you know, wives and things like this, creating her own little... A horde. A horde, yeah. A little super group to go out there and fight the cause. So this was really becoming a, a pretty big international push, which was similar to the Satanic Panic, but I think in a more effective way, mm -hmm. because this message was way clearer. It was like, drugs are bad. Yeah. Don't let kids do drugs. So yeah. this was just building a lot of a lot of steam and getting a lot of money behind it. One thing to keep in mind, though, is this entire time, there's no real evidence that this is changing anything, but everybody's feeling really good about themselves. We got to try something, right? <laughs> got to try. Get those so. children off of drugs. So what was accomplished with all of this effort? Like, really, what, what did we accomplish? Yeah, that's a good question. And those questions started the moment these campaigns started. Of course, of course. there were critics right away being like, this is the dumbest idea we've ever heard. And, if, you know, people were doing studies right away. So, yeah, you know, it's not like this went on for decades without anybody questioning it. Right. And I think that one thing that this did do is they did increase in awareness globally that drug abuse is a problem. Yeah. Which I was already known, though. It I mean, yeah. this is kind they of... They increased the knowingness. It's like everybody, look up at the sky, there's this thing called the sun. But everybody already knew the sun was in the sky. Right. And the use of illegal drugs did actually decrease during the Reagan administration. But really, there's no direct link here. This was a trajectory we were already on. You already kind of mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. This had nothing to do with that. It would have happened regardless. Yeah, there's no direct link between those numbers and the Just Say No campaign. In fact, studies in the more popular campaigns show a link between uh, the program and an increase in um, use of alcohol and cigarettes. Yeah, so. because they were so effective at trying to scare kids that saying all drugs are bad. Yeah. 
that when kids wanted to like party, they were like, cool, then I guess we should just drink and smoke. And yeah. like it made them increase their use because they felt like they were doing the right thing by not doing drugs. Absolutely. So I, basically nothing was accomplished. Yeah, well, I do think it was extremely effective and it should have been for the amount of money they were spending on, Mm -hmm. especially the D.A.R.E. program. They had enough money to be able to be effective as far as scaring people into thinking that drugs were everywhere in every school in America. But as far as the effectiveness of actually stopping people from doing drugs, this this was not addressing any of the actual problems. There were so many studies done, just tons and tons of studies over the years all of them are pretty interesting and almost unanimously show that not only did they have no effect they actually a lot of people who went through the programs increased their use of drugs well it makes sense though because when you think about it they're like pot's really bad it's just as bad as something more addictive and if you try one of the gateway drugs i mean it's through those programs we learn the term gateway drug. And you're like, oh, that's not so dangerous. It's really not a big deal. Then you're like open to trying more. Yeah. Yeah. And there were critics right away from the 80s being like, why wouldn't we legalize drugs and then regulate it and tax it? Yeah. That's how you're going to stop the increase of drugs and we can keep a handle on it. And of course, the Reagan administration was like, don't even think about it, which is very interesting. So... Uh, There were a lot of flaws, a lot of fun studies to read, but one of my favorites is this week's fun fact. So in 1992, there was a big study done by Indiana University, and they went over uh, studying and doing analysis of students mm-hmm. who had gone through the program. So had had oh, the D.A.R.E. Okay. program coming to their school regularly, you know, and going through all the steps and the mentoring and all that. And the results found that they actually had a significantly higher rate of using hallucinogenic <laughs> drugs than kids who had never done the D.A.R.E. program. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and that kind of sets up the reoccurring theme for a lot of these studies. It got so bad that in 1994, Mm -hmm. there was a big article, I think it was like the New York Times or something, broke this article that the D.A.R.E. program alone had spent $41,000 just trying to stop a study coming out showing how ineffective it was because it was going to lose all of the funding that was behind it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact number because I didn't write it down, but... The, annually, the D.A.R.E. program was getting millions and millions and millions. I mean, several million dollars every year to go okay. towards this. So this was not good press to say, hey, we as taxpayers are giving you millions and millions of dollars a year. And all these studies are showing that it's completely ineffective. Yeah. So it makes sense that they were trying to suppress this. Uh-huh. But eventually it did catch up with them. And uh, by... The early 2000s, the budget had been like severely cut because it just, the writing was on the wall. Like you you couldn't deny it. Sure. What cracks me up is they did try and rebrand it, the huh. D.A.R.E. program in 2009. I did not know this. Oh, man. It got rebranded as Keeping It Real. Oh. <laughs> and it kind of swayed away from like say, not saying, uh, you know, no to drugs and more... Just make good decisions in life. Okay. I mean, that's good. We should all make good decisions. Yeah. You know, I had a question about that Indiana University, or maybe just a thought, the study where they're saying people who had completed the program were more likely to have done hallucinogenics. I wonder how effective a study like that could be, because I'm I'm imagining, just based on our little conversation from the beginning... People in bigger communities probably had more access to D.A.R.E. and completed the program. They also would have more access to hallucinogenic drugs than people in rural communities who had no access to the Mm -hmm. D.A.R.E. campaign. So that doesn't seem like a very helpful study. It's just sort of food for thought. I just don't think you can really measure or quantify the results of a program like that when it's so big. Yeah, well, they did some of the studies because keep in mind this program ran for decades. Right. They followed students from elementary all the way up into their 20s and stuff. And 
studied how their effectiveness of like fighting against the use of drugs, how it was a complete failure. Yeah. So had there only been one or two studies, but there were just dozens yeah. and dozens of studies done over the years by multiple countries, keep in mind, not just <laughs> America, like Japan did a huge study that was like, this is completely ineffective. And so yeah. this was a reoccurring problem. The other issue with the ineffectiveness of this that we have to address, but I'm sure everybody can sympathize with our limited time and not getting too deep in it, was the other huge elephant in the room and the effect it had on targeting minority communities, especially. <laughs> like, this is a totally different podcast topic. But just briefly, I did want to talk about that because yeah. as a result of the Just Say No campaign in 1986, was passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And anybody knows anything about this knows this is kind of central to one of uh, the, the core issues with all of this. That was this idea of reforming how to tackle drug use and mm-hmm. how to go after and prosecute drug users. <laughs> <laughs> but it like Nancy liked, it was an all or none. It was like, all drugs are equal. If you use drugs, you will be arrested and it just made the population of the prison system absolutely explode. Yeah. I wish I would have wrote down the number because it was staggering. Right. The percentage it increased in the 80s was unreal because all these people were being arrested for super minor offenses of drug use thanks to this act now. Right. More importantly, which everybody knows and we have to address, is that... It was also targeting minority communities, and this yeah. seems very intentional. And if people are confused about this, let me just kind of briefly run down how this worked. Okay. So with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, there was kind of these core elements. One that was completely detrimental to American society was a mandatory minimum prison sentence. So if you got caught with a certain amount of crack or cocaine, you got five years in prison no matter what. Right. Right. Okay, that's one thing. The problem is that there was this thing called like a 100 to 1 ratio that was treating crack cocaine differently than cocaine. So crack is a synthetic version. It's much cheaper, Mm -hmm. easier to get. It was also what was running rampant in the 80s through minority Mm -hmm. communities, especially black communities. This was easy to get and was creating a lot of substance abuse problems. This is insane when you think about it. So the way this policy treated crack versus cocaine is five grams of crack, which is like, you know, a couple bags of sugar or something, was equivalent to 500 grams of cocaine. Why this is important is that means that somebody, let's say, in a minority community with five grams of crack will get five years in prison minimum for somebody, let's say a well-to-do white person at the country club with 500 grams of cocaine. So you can imagine the ripple effect that this had. It like decimated these communities. Wow. The prison population exploded and the statistics were so insane. Like more than 80% were sentenced for, that were sentenced for crack were black. Like, so it was clearly like, a no-brainer that this was also targeting certain communities. Ugh. Also, um, black communities had a 49% higher sentence rate yeah. than whites or others. So this was really the legacy of this whole act. <laughs> wasn't like we're going after drug abuse and crime. Right. It was we're targeting certain communities and we're going to put them in prison with no treatment whatsoever. Yeah, and then... Adding to this, compounding this, of course, under the Reagan administration, we also have a tremendous amount of mentally ill evicted from help. They're on the streets. What are they doing to treat their mental illness? The mental health facilities had been shut down. That's what I was saying. Yeah. And they're like, hey, let's just go on the streets. And what's crazy is that this was the biggest criticism of the D.A.R.E. campaign was that they weren't talking about substance abuse treatment. They were just talking about like, you're bad if you do drugs. Yeah, you're just bad if you do drugs. So you can see that we're just scratching the surface, but this created a huge, 
huge ripple effect that didn't even get addressed until 2010 with Obama when he was like, we got to reform this whole entire act. This is insane. Yeah. Ultimately, I think the Just Say No campaign is sort of like Nancy Reagan's version of saying, let them eat cake. She had so little understanding of the bigger systemic problems that she just said, let them eat cake, essentially. Like, just say no. It's so trite. It's so uneducated about the bigger problems at hand. Just saying no is no type of solution. It's stupid. Yeah. It's just really, really stupid. So that simplified slogan just really highlights her lack of understanding that the drug epidemic was part of a bigger problem. It also made light of a problem that often included minors whose parents were drug addicts. So that's something we also can't really get into. I mean, beyond saying that they were asking them to narc on their parents. But what what are kids whose families have a history of drug abuse to do? Yeah. Just say no to your mom and dad? Yeah. No, that's not going to happen. It's so horrible. And also you're saying your family, your aunt, your uncle, your mentally ill cousin, whatever, are bad because they've done this thing. You're not talking about treating drug addiction. You're not talking about empathy or compassion for people who have addiction problems. That is so short-sighted and so unkind, which I, I don't think was her goal, but it definitely was happening. Yeah, and the overarching theme of all of this, too, is just the utter failure of the whole concept of a war on drugs that just can't be won because it started back with the Nixon administration in the 70s going all the way into the 2000s. And over a 50-year span of the whole kind of umbrella idea of the war on drugs, it's been Mm -hmm. estimated that taxpayers have paid $1 trillion to try and fight the supposed war on drugs that has been on all accounts, an absolute failure. Utter failure. So it's really interesting. And then the best part is the irony of it all is that it's had like the opposite effect. So you talked about the shirts being worn. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came out of the D.A.R.E. campaign was the ironic use of wearing D.A.R.E. shirts, Mm -hmm. which this is my experience as a teenager in the 90s was our group, especially like I would always have like somebody wearing a D.A.R.E. shirt Mm -hmm poking fun at how absurd the D.A.R.E. program was. So yeah. it was becoming like completely counter-effective and it was just spreading it more. I liken it to uh, other things like this. So if you tell kids don't do drugs, they're not cool. It's like immediately saying do drugs, they're cool. It's very similar to putting uh, explicit lyrics labels mm-hmm. on albums that tells me I have to listen to it. Banned books. Banned books. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Like, why did I want that book so bad? Because it was banned. Like, that's the way this works. Mm-hmm. It's so similar to that, that this is just not not thinking ahead. Very it, much. it presupposes that most people want to conform, but there are a whole bunch of us that are contrarians. If you say, don't do it, we want to do it. Don't touch the hot stove. We want to put our hands on the hot stove just because you weirdo told me not to. Yeah, absolutely. And in kind of wrapping this up in our final thoughts, too, something that I found really fascinating was I watched an 80s news program Mm -hmm. right after the Reagans announced this whole Just Say No campaign. And it was, I don't know who it was, Dan Rather, somebody like that, interviewing teens at a high school on their thoughts of this campaign. Like, he said, will you be a crusader for this cause? And all of them were like, absolutely not. And what was shocking was all of them unanimously were like, this is a dumb idea. This is not effective. Mm -hmm. This is... This is, keep in mind, teenagers, like 15, 16-year-olds saying they're not addressing the actual issues of drug use. And what I found really fascinating was a couple students said if they want it to be really effective, you don't have somebody just a celebrity going, hey, man, no thanks. Or McGruff, the crime dog, playing saxophone and singing about not doing drugs. They said what you need to do is show real life. You need to have it be violent and abusive and aggressive and dirty because that's what will scare people to realize this is actual drug abuse yeah and that brings me to modern day campaigns and the effectiveness because we were living in montana when the whole like just say no to meth you know meth uh never again kind of campaign never again yeah and it was so shocking. These billboard, billboards mm. were everywhere. It started by a billionaire in Montana who was like, we can't do this anymore because meth in Montana was out of control. Q 
keep in mind, this is all part of the war on drugs is we couldn't beat, you know, crack. We couldn't beat meth. We can't beat opioids. Like it's just, it's an unending yeah. war. Anyway, I remember Darren Aronofsky, a director that we love who did, you know, Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan got hired to do these four commercials. And when we saw them, they were so brutal and dark and gritty and honest about meth heads stealing money from their parents and beating their moms and everything like that. And it was shocking. But I read up on it. And the statistics of those campaigns were like massively effective. Mm -hmm. The the drug use of meth youths dropped majorly because people were like, what is going on? That was so different than a hound dog in a trench coat with shades. Like, it just... Well, Scruff's cool. Yeah, Scruff's is cool. But you also can't just scare people straight, you know? Like, it, there, you have to create treatment facilities, and that's what the meth campaign was doing, is they were also setting up counseling programs and stuff like that, so... And not othering drug abusers or yeah. drug addicts. Like, just saying, you're sorry, you're human waste now, you've tried the drug, you're done for. Yeah. You, di- you didn't just say no. Yeah, that's the other thing. So final thought on that is another criticism of Nancy was she was saying once you've done drugs, like you're basically damaged goods. And she wasn't addressing that, like your uncle can smoke some pot at the barbecue. He's not a heroin user, you know, so it just was really complicated. Yeah. This is such a huge, huge topic. Oh, my gosh. We just, I think, scratched the surface. Barely scratched it. Hopefully this was an interesting episode to people. I know this is a little different, but I really enjoyed this. And this was a huge part of the 80s. I remember it distinctly. I have a just say no um, button that I found at the thrift store. It's so cool. So this was just absolutely part of pop culture. And it just fascinates me how it decimated communities, flooded the prison systems, completely drained taxpayers' monies with no statistics to back it up, all the while on a national scale, making it seem as though it was like super effective. Mm -hmm. It was really fascinating to me. This was a bizarre story. So bizarre and lacking such empathy. It's really sad. And it really only ended in the 2000s. Like it was going strong up until then. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) you know... There you go. There's the Just Say No campaign of the 1980s. Just say no to the Reagans. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, everybody. Well, that was fun. That was interesting. Uh, my brain, like, this is my brain on Just Say No Facts. Yep. It's a scrambled egg. Oh, that's We didn't weird. even get to talk about that campaign, remember? That's right. Just, this is your brain on drugs? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Man. Okay. Anyway, there's only so much time. Well, thanks everybody for sticking with us through this. This was so much fun. If you liked what you heard, like we said at the beginning of the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends about our podcast. Spread the word. You know, this is just a a free show that we're doing for fun. And um, please support all of our friends who podcast. We're always sharing their episodes and our stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you want to follow us, we're at www.lasergraves.com. Because I think that places like Spotify and stuff only do so many episodes back. I don't know. Who cares? But you probably don't really need to hear the really early ones. Go listen to our first one. It's amazing. (laughs) Go listen to our 14th. Yeah, we did have some good ones early on. Uh, Then you can also follow us on Instagram at lasergraves. If you want to follow our personal accounts, my... VHS tape account is at Arg the Awful. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And I also want you to remember, if you're in one of those states like New Mexico where pot is legal, Nancy Reagan thinks you're damaged goods. Yeah. Also, um, we're making a killing off of the taxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so fixing potholes in the street while With smoking pot. pot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.